so welcome to the November edition of the McFarland's HR and Employment Law podcast. I'm Matthew Ramsey. I'm the Senior Knowledge Lawyer in the Employment Team. I'm afraid you've got no other voice on this month's edition. It's just me. Uh, that's not because uh, nothing's happened this month or because the rest of the team has suddenly fallen into a chasm. It's just that we thought we'd do uh, a relatively straightforward legislation update. And that's probably something that falls within my purview rather than any of the other team members. The background to the proposed legislation that the government put out last week is a series of consultation papers that the government published last year and the beginning of this. And really, they are driven by Brexit. So on the back of Brexit, as no doubt you will all know, the government has made much of the uh, supposed freedom that being outside the European Union gives us uh, as, a, as an economy, as a country. That, though, they have balanced with constant commitments not to dampen or diminish employment protection. And that balancing act has been quite difficult to square in practice. You'll remember also that the original plan for uh, Brexit was to have a wholesale repeal of all legislation that was concomitant on our membership, with only those specific pieces of legislation that the government targeted to retain being maintained on the on the UK statute book. There was then a wholesale U-turn on that position so that the default became uh, one of keeping all legislation and until it was specifically repealed. Um, and that affects employment law in a number of interesting ways. And the government has tried to address some of those concerns by specifically implementing what has been for a long time the case law of the European Court of Justice. Uh, and we'll see how they've done that in four different areas today. So we're going to talk about TUPI, about working time uh, record keeping about holiday and then a little bit about discrimination. So we'll talk about TUPI first. And here, really, the changes are not very substantial at all. Many of you, no doubt, will know that TUPI applies on in two different situations, either where there's a transfer of an undertaking, so a, a business or an asset sale, and also on a, the, the change of service provider. So an insourcing, outsourcing, contracted change, those kinds of scenarios. One of the key po points about GP is that any employee who affected by either of those transfer scenarios is entitled to be informed about it so they can make a decision about whether, in fact, they want to work for somebody new, uh, the, the transferee in the, in the jargon. There's always been uh, some concern about how that information process should be carried out in very small organizations because the, the strict wording of the regulation require quite a complicated process of election of employee representatives and then consultation with that, uh, that representative group. And obviously, in very small organizations, that's not really practical or desirable. And so for a little while now, there's been a, a so-called micro-business exemption for uh, any employer with fewer than 10 employees. And that really is quite a small group of, um, of organisation. The government now proposes to widen that exemption so that businesses with fewer than 50 employees are, are no longer required to go through that uh, employee election process. They can just uh, consult and inform their employees direct. And that same exemption is proposed to apply where there are fewer than 10 transferring. So those are both broadly sensible changes. They probably replicate the relatively loose approach to compliance that many uh, employers have taken in practice over many years. I importantly, though, that even though TUPI still has a, a large number of quite quirky uh, provisions that are quite difficult to work through in practice, so who exactly is caught, um, how you deal with split transfers, the circumstances in which you can really harmonise terms just for commercial ease, 
all of those things remain problematic and the government has decided not to not to tinker with those at all looking then at uh, working time uh, no doubt everybody listening will know that there is a, a maximum working week in the UK 48 hours but that that can be overridden by an opt out so employees are able to to opt out of that um, that maximum the working time regulations though give employers an obligation to keep a keep a check keep a record of what their workers are doing um, in terms of uh, maximum working hours the 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 obligation is to is to maintain adequate records and unusually in employment law failure to maintain adequate records actually carries a criminal sanction um the position though in the uk was made very complicated by a decision of the european court uh, in a case called ccoo against deutsche bank which on the face of the judgment seems to require every employer for every one of their employees to provide pretty detailed records on a daily basis objective reliable and accessible are the words that they they use to describe the the records that have to be maintained uh, and you can obviously see that goes a long way beyond the the word adequate on the face of the working time regulation the government's decided that adequate is the test that they want to maintain and so they're going to um, make that even more clear on the face of the legislation uh, and it's probably broadly sensible the third area and this is probably the biggest one is all about holiday um so uh, loyal listeners will remember that uh, Jason Galbraith Martin gave us his thoughts on the supreme court's decision in agnew last month uh, which is all about holiday pay and we talked about the 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 difficulties that that decision gives rise to because um of the way that the working time regulations structure holiday in the uk so you'll remember that we've got four weeks of a uh, paid leave which comes ultimately from the european working time directive um and that has to be paid at inverted commas normal pay which includes commission overtime payment for tasks that are intrinsic to the role uh then we've got separately dealt with on the face of the legislation 1.6 weeks of additional leave and that's um really designed to replicate bank holidays and that has to be paid at basic pay and so you've got two different elements with two different pay rates unless employers decide just to make make their lives easier by paying the high rate for everything uh, and i guess if if you had um additional contractual holiday on top of those two statutory elements you could theoretically have three different three different pay rates um the government has consulted on whether to uh, roll those 1.6 and 4 weeks of a differently dealt with holiday into one pot um and have decided against it and so we 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 maintain the position that there are two different sources of paid holiday in the UK and potentially they carry two different pay rates how um how one squares that with the supreme court's view in the agnew case that we talked about last month that holiday is to be regarded as a composite pot um with not you know no no differentiation between the the four weeks the 1.6 weeks and anything that's contractual on top is really quite quite difficult we have to have to give some thought to how employers can can intelligently grapple with uh, the maintenance of two different pay rates the second part of holiday is all about uh, rolled up holiday pay so rolled up holiday pay is where you've got people who work irregular hours and it's much easier to pay them a small percentage on account of holiday pay 
rather on a, on a whenever they work rather than trying to pay them separately for holiday pay when it's so intermittent. The European Court of Justice ruled in 2006 that that was uh, not a, not an available option. But the UK government has really turned a blind eye to that for many years and provided that holiday pay was clearly itemised on a payslip and was transparent. The, the government's now going to make that explicitly permitted so that as long as, again, it's on the payslip, it's paid at 12.07% of basic pay, uh, you're going to be allowed to, to do it but only for two different categories of worker. And those two new categories are um, new to employment law. Uh, they are called irregular workers and part-year workers. So irregular workers are those who are whose paid hours week or per month are wholly or mostly variable. And part-year workers are those where they have a period on work and a period off work. So, for instance, teachers who work during term time and don't work during holiday time. Uh, and the, the desire to include part-year workers comes from another recent um, Supreme Court case called Harper and Brazil, in which this um, this problem of uh, what you pay and when you pay it was a, a really live point in litigation. So where you've got either irregular or part-year workers, you're now permitted to, or you're going to uh, make use of all that holiday pay, if you so wish. It's not mandatory, but it will be a, an option for the firms to consider. And so the action points then are going to be to make sure that um, inverted commas normal pay uh, includes those various elements, commission, overtime and so on, uh, so that you're paying people the correct amount for their EU-derived leave. Uh, and then to decide whether or not you really want to try to pay different rates for different types of leave. And if you do, how you're going to get uh, comfortable with um the Supreme Court decision in, in Agnew and this composite po point. Uh, as Jason said on the podcast last month, we think that as long as you're, you contractually deal with the order in which different types of holiday are taken, that ought to be okay. And so, uh, but, but the, the fundamental point of whether it's administratively too complex to have different pay rates will be the, the key point to decide for employers there. Then we'll need to check whether any irregular or part year uh, workers exist in your employee uh, cohort, uh, and if so, whether you want to make use of the rollback holiday um, flexibility. Uh, and then there needs to be some sort of system um, in place to remind people to take their holiday. Rollback holiday, even if you use it, doesn't relieve you of the obligation to to remind people to take their leave. Holiday, as people are, as the courts are fond of reminding us, is originally a health and safety measure. Uh, and so uh, the right to pay time off is, is an important thing for employees, mental health, physical well-being, and so on. That point about reminding people to take leave is particularly important when we're looking at carrying over holiday. Uh, and that's another point that the government's going to tidy up in the legislation, again, simply to replicate the position in the European uh, jurisprudence. So where uh, somebody has been miscategorized as a contractor, but is actually a worker, then uh, the position will be that they are entitled to carry over leave without limit. Um, where somebody's been prevented from taking paid annual leave because they've been either on family leave or on sickness absence, then the position is a tiny bit more complicated. Where they've effectively missed out on, on annual leave because they've been on maternity leave, for instance, then they'll be entitled to carry uh, 5.6 weeks of so their full statutory entitlement into the next leave year, use that. But where somebody's not been able to take 
annual leave because they've been on a sickness absence, then they'll only be entitled to carry four weeks of leave, so the part of their allotment that comes from uh, European law, um, and they'll be able to use that within the 18 months following. Uh, so that's a, a slightly longer time period, but for slightly less, less leave. The, the good thing about that clarification, once it's inactive, is that it will it will um, stop the, the the concern that many employers have grappled with over many years. But what happens if you have somebody who's off sick for very extended period? Do they continue to accrue leave for the whole of that period, uh, so that there's a huge outstanding sum due on termination or when they come back to active work? Uh, so this um, limitation on how much can be carried over and when it has to be used by it will be helpful from that perspective. And then the last bit of tidying up is in relation to discrimination law. And these points are, are very technical, and I, I don't propose to go into them in any detail. But just to sort of flag their general categories, there's some new drafting on associative discrimination. There's um, some new uh, definitional work on how we look at what counts as disability. There's some new drafting on equal pay and on breastfeeding, and on pregnancy and maternity discrimination, and on recruitment. And so if you have any concerns in any of those areas, or would like more details, then as always, my contact details are in the episode description. Those are all the points that we were going to cover today. So all that makes me to do is to say thank you once again for listening. Um, if you have feedback on the podcast or any subjects you'd particularly like us to address, then please do get in touch. Um, either with me or any of the rest of the employment team. And I'll see you for uh, the December edition in a little while.